Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. Luke 10, 25 through 28. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Good evening. I'm going to start out with my apologies. No, I'm not apologizing for the Steelers walking into Cleveland today and trouncing them. Because I expected that. Let's be honest, you guys did too. No, I'm, I'm apologizing because two months ago, give or take, when Matt first approached me about doing this series, I did not anticipate having a head and chest congestion. And so my apologies when I start coughing and hacking up here. Please just bear with me. I hope the, uh, the medicine that I'm on will do its stuff. If not, I have tissues, I have cough drops, I'll take care of myself. And we'll, just, we'll do some fist bumps afterwards. A few months ago, as I was finishing up one of my construction projects, it was a Wednesday, and the owner was having a grand opening the next day. And so I was on site trying to make sure that everything was in order for the big party. I had cleaners, I had finished carpenters, I had painters, all scurrying around the building to get everything in tip-top shape. I was getting on in the day, and, and it was down to just me and, and one painter. Now, when I say painter, I don't mean to give the impression of uh, some guy in a blue beret painting pictures of sunsets and rainbows and grassy meadows. No, this guy had a shaved bald head and two beard ponies hanging down to his waist. Okay, he's a rough, gruff type of guy. And as it was passing 5 o'clock, Tiffany calls me up, wondering if I'm going to be able to come home for supper. And so I tell her, no, we still have some things to finish up, but I'll be sure to be finished up in time, and I'll just meet you at the church building for Wednesday night Bible studies. And this guy heard that. And after I hung up the phone with Tiffany, he starts talking to me about the Bible. He knew the Bible. He was well-versed. He was incisive. He was, had an in-depth knowledge of it. We had a great conversation about it. Now, I could sit here and preach a sermon on judging a book by its cover, but maybe that's a sermon best left for another time. But he did say something that evening that, that really kind of struck me and it stuck with me. It's something that I've, I've heard before, but for some reason that night it just really stuck in my craw. He said that he believes that it is faith only that will save somebody. I talked to him about James and how it's faith along with works. And we had a good conversation about it. I haven't seen him since that evening, but given that I hire the company from time to time, I'm sure I'll run into him again. And I'm looking forward to continuing that conversation with him. But that conversation that night has led me to this night. And so Dave, Jose, and I, along with Matt, have had a great study about what is true conversion? Is it faith only? 
Or is it more than just faith? In Luke 10, at our reading tonight, just before the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus has a conversation with the lawyer. And behold, a lawyer stood up and to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. How do we get eternal life? What is true conversion? According to Jesus Christ, it is a conversion of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Next week, David Lee will be discussing the conversion of the soul. And the following week, Jose will be up here taking us through the conversion of the strength. But this week, I'm going to focus on the conversion of the heart and of the mind. Or to put it another way, going from unbelief to faith. Conversion of the mind from unbelief to knowledge. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now I say that this is from unbelief to knowledge, but it's probably better stated as from ignorance to knowledge. See, we all start out this life as blank slates, don't we? And some of us stay blank slates a little longer than others. And, and I don't mean that... In a, in a funny way, I don't mean that in a derogatory, condescending way. It just, it's a fact. We're all shaped by our upbringing. And some of us are raised with Christian, in Christian homes and, and get that Christian teachings in our youth. Some have less and some not at all. And though we may begin our search from various vantage points, we can all come to the same conclusion, to the knowledge of the truth based on facts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this is what I would call the conversion of the mind. Now there are different ways to come to the knowledge of the truth. One way is simply through studying the world around us. This is known as natural revelation. As Paul says in Romans 1.20, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. God can be and is seen outside of the Bible in the world that He created. And if you've sat through one of the apologetic classes that I've taught here, and you've been presented with the scientific, the historic, and the logical evidence that shows beyond a shadow of a doubt, I believe, that God exists, that the Bible is His Word, and that Jesus Christ is His Son. I'm not going to dive into that deeply tonight, but if it's something that you are interested in, if it's something that you're struggling with, please see me and and I will get you the information. But God can be seen through His creation by natural revelation. He can also be seen through something called special revelation. I think nature is pretty special. I enjoy it. But what I mean by special revelation is God has specially and specifically given us a book. Many books, actually. We've compiled them into one bound set called we call the Bible. That is His special revelation. 
How do you know what's on someone's mind unless they tell you? Same applies to God. We can't know the mind of God unless He tells us. And He has told us. He has spent many years speaking through many people so that we can get to know Him. So we know what's on His mind. And perhaps the most powerful example of His revelation is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who as we learned this morning during Matt's sermon, was born into history as the physical embodiment of God. And through the Bible and its presentation of Jesus Christ, you can come to know God. He does not expect us to have a blind faith, but has revealed Himself to us that we may know Him. And once we get to knowledge, we have to go from knowledge to faith. Believing that there is a God or simply having knowledge of His existence is not what will save a person. There's a very large gap between knowledge of God and faith in God. And the Bible is very clear that faith is an intricate and vital part of salvation. On this point, my newfound friend had it right though several months ago. Romans 3 says, "By now the righteousness of God has been man- excuse me, but now the righteousness of God has been, has been manifested through faith. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Hebrews 11:6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. But what is faith? Merriam-Webster defines faith as, quote, "strong belief or trust in someone or something." Something that is believed, especially with strong conviction. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. (coughs) Cynical atheist Richard Dawkins has defined faith in much the same way. He said in a lecture one time that faith is the, quote, belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. There are many people in this world today, even many Christians, I believe, that, that would define faith in this way. But that's not how God has defined faith. Hebrews chapter 11, very famously, God's defined faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the English Standard Version. New King James Version translates this verse as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now the Greek word translated as assurance and substance is hypostasis which in essence means a guarantee. And the Greek word translated as conviction and evidence is eglikos, which is literally proof or evidence, as one might see in a court of law. See, our faith is God's guarantee for what we hope for, which is eternal life in Him. And it is proof of what we can't see, the spiritual realm. Because faith in the biblical view is based on facts and evidence, not a blind faith. But our human minds, I know, still struggle with with what faith really means. And so to illustrate, here's a story. There's once a man who would walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he had a barrel that he could roll across the rope in front of him. And one day he did this in front of an amazed crowd, and he walked from one side to the other, rolling the barrel in front of him. And upon reaching the other side, he turned around and returned, rolling the barrel the whole way. And at his return, he asked the crowd, 
Who believes that I can roll the barrel across and back again without falling or dropping the barrel? Everyone in the crowd cheered and raised their hands. He then asked, Who's willing to get in the barrel? Now one hand was raised. See, everyone believed that he could do it. But no one was willing to put their faith in him. To put their lives in his hands. John 12.42 says that many, even the authorities, believed in Him, talking about Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They knew that Jesus was who He said He was. They acknowledged that in their minds, but they would not put their faith in Him. And in James 2, verse 19, says that even the demons believe and tremble. See, the demons, many of these Jews at that time and And many still today acknowledge God. And they acknowledge Jesus, but they don't put their faith in Him. Compare this to Thomas. Thomas, who was an apostle of Jesus. One of the twelve people that Jesus chose among all His disciples. He was skeptical that Jesus rose from the dead. Even though he undoubtedly heard that Jesus predict His own resurrection. And he said in John chapter 20, verse 25, after the resurrection, Thomas says, Unless I see his hands, see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, Thomas was confronted with the resurrected Christ. And Jesus said to him, Put your finger here, see my hands. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas cried out, My Lord and my God. He believed in Jesus when confronted with the evidence. And it wasn't a simple acknowledgement of Jesus. Like, Oh yeah, I guess you are resurrected. Hey, what are you going to make for dinner tonight? No. It wasn't an acknowledgement in that, that way. It was confession of his faith. And you can see here that there's a major difference between knowledge of God and faith in God. And once we have faith, I believe we can get to the conversion of the heart or the conviction of our faith. This goes hand in hand with the conversion of the mind, but is the emotional conviction of a person as they give themselves to Christ. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the very first Sunday morning sermon, and as he was talking, you can see that his words greatly affected the crowd. Verse 37, he says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now what was Peter preaching about that could have convicted the hearts of this crowd? It was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Peter just told the crowd in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. See, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the most emotional, heart-wrenching event in all of history and is the most effective event that will convict a man's heart. It is well documented in history that Jesus was crucified under the rule of Pontius Pilate, but it's the manner in which He died 
that convicts our hearts because he didn't just die. He was punished. He was beaten, scourged, and finally crucified, which is one of the cruelest forms of death ever devised by mankind. Nails, we would call them spikes, were driven through his hands and his feet, and he was hung on the cross where he would hang until he was dead. Jesus Christ, though he was tempted in all points just as we are, was without sin, according to Hebrews chapter 4. He did not deserve death. But yet he went willingly to the cross. Why would he do this? Why would he choose that? Because he knows without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We have all sinned. We deserve death. We have broken the law and we deserve the punishment. But it's a punishment that we cannot bear. Because of God's great love for us, He came down from heaven in the person of Jesus to take our punishment. Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8 through For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you're standing in the middle of the road and I tackled you out of the way of a moving bus and saved your life, you would feel indebted to me. If I would push you out of the way and get hit myself, you would feel even more gratitude. And if I were to die in the process of saving your life, would you feel that you could ever really repay me? But yet Jesus died for us to save us. Not our bodies, but something much, much more precious. He took our punishment. He took our sentence of death upon Himself so that our souls can be pardoned, to be saved and be reunited with our God. It is the single greatest act of love ever committed and the most heart-wrenching, emotionally convicting moment in all of history when you come to the understanding of the depths of love that Christ had to have for us in order to go through such agony. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Are you convinced in your mind? Are you convicted in your heart but have not yet responded to God? This is the beginning of true conversion, but it's not yet a conversion. I don't want to steal David's thunder for next week, but in order to give the invitation, I'll offer you a little sneak preview. After Peter's words on the day of Pentecost cut to the hearts of the crowd, they asked him, What shall we do? His response to them was, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Conversion of the mind and the heart leads us to the conversion of the soul, where we're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk as a new creation, free from the threat of death and free to walk hand in hand with our Lord 
our Savior, our God. If you have the need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, or have the need to return to your God and would like the prayers and support of our church, please come forward as we stand and sing this song.